Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we give you our grateful praise tonight for who you are and how you have exercised your power and love in our lives. We thank you that you have brought us back from the depths of sin, that you have taken us from our lost condition, and that you have put us in a broad and blessed place, that you have placed us in the kingdom of your dear Son, and have made us members of the household of God, indeed children of God, adopted into your family. We thank you that we are what we are because of your mercy and grace. We thank you that we did not earn this, that you did not expect us to accomplish some mighty moral feat before you would accept us, but you did so for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We do pray tonight that out of gratitude toward you, toward our Savior, and gratitude for the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that we might take very seriously the exhortations of your word, that we might study them diligently and in detail, and we might commit ourselves to obeying them. Again, not that we might earn anything from your hand, but rather that we might show to you that we love you, and that we are grateful for the salvation that is ours. And Lord, we, we pray especially tonight as we look at this passage of your word that is before us, that we would appreciate the significance of the Sabbath as has been given to us. Lord, please keep us from that pharisaical error that is so easy to fall into of calculating just exactly in a self-righteous way what is right or wrong to do on this day and forgetting the whole purpose of the day, forgetting its place in the scheme of redemption and the significance it should have for us in our relationship to you. We do pray that you might give us tonight a renewed interest in and following of and love for that day of rest, which is so significant in terms of the eternal rest that will be ours in our Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Tonight we want to study the fourth chapter of Hebrews, and I'm going to begin by reading it. This is one of those unhappy divisions in God's Word. The fourth chapter of Hebrews is not where the text should have been divided. It should have been divided at verse 14, if it's going to be divided at all. Now, I think I've told you the joke before, you'll get tired of hearing it, but it does seem every once in a while when that guy in the early Middle Ages was marking out the verses and chapters in the Bible on his donkey as he went from city to city, that his donkey stepped in a hole and he's put his pen down and said, oh, well, it looks like a chapter break right there because this is not where the chapter should be broken. But that's where we're going to begin our reading because we've studied up to this point. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear God's word. Let us fear, therefore, lest aptly a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good tidings preached unto us, even as also they. But the word of hearing did not profit them, because it was not united by faith with them that heard. For we who have believed do enter into that rest, even as he hath said, As I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he hath said somewhere of the seventh day on this wise, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And in this place, again, 
they shall not enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some should enter thereunto, and they to whom the good tidings were before preached failed to enter in because of disobedience, he again defineth a certain day, today, saying in David, so long a time afterward, even as hath been said before, today if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken afterward of another day. There remaineth therefore a Sabbath resting for the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest hath himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest, that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And I'm going to end the reading there. As you see, now the author at verse 14 says, Having been a great high priest. Having been a great high priest. He hasn't been talking about any great high priest in the preceding verses. This is one of the longest um, insertions of, of, of an exposition of a point before going on to the next point that you'll find in God's Word. It's not quite parenthetical. I don't mean to subordinate it in that way. But the author in chapter 3 has spoken of our great high priest. Look at the beginning of chapter 3. And then he gets into all this discussion of rest and pressing in and being the household of God and then at verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, having then a great high priest. Now that I've explained all that intervening stuff, now I'll come back to that high priest idea. But that intervening stuff is really important. Uh, I'm not going to go verse by verse through Hebrews 4 tonight. I'll probably do that next time, Lord willing. I want to look theologically tonight at the teaching about history and especially eschatology, the doctrine of last things, as we find it in the book of Hebrews and how the author purposely relates that to the subject of the Sabbath. So to begin with, um, let's get some idea of the general perspective on last things as we find it in the book of Hebrews. That is, what is the author of Hebrews? What is his conception of the course of history? We do know in general that the Bible, other authors of the Bible, see history in terms of two ages, the present age in the age to come. We also know that the New Testament teaches that the future age, listen closely, sportsman, because this gets real important, the future age has broken in upon the present age. That already we are living in the last days. That in some sense, what has been looked forward to as the consummation blessing of God's people in some sense, that's already been established and is being enjoyed by those who follow Jesus Christ. Those who are not Christians live in the present wicked age. And the coming of Jesus Christ means only judgment. But those who are in Christ already are enjoying the future. We are enjoying, if I can put it this way, heaven in our hearts right now. And when Christ returns, it's going to be a magnification and consummation of what we've already begun to enjoy. Just think about how Paul calls the Holy Spirit the down payment of our inheritance. 
God has already given his initial deposit on heaven to us. We enjoy that now, and when Christ returns, he's going to give the whole thing. And so, for us, the future has broken into the present. There is an overlap between the present and the future age. To put it in terms of the kingdom, we often say the kingdom is established, but not consummated. The kingdom is already here, but not yet here. How can that be? Well, because the kingdom is a dynamic process. God has begun that process, but he's not finished it yet. It's been established, but it's not yet finished. Okay. Now, having said that, it won't surprise you that we find the same structure of thought in the author of Hebrews. The already, the not yet. Uh, this is really fascinating to me. If you turn to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you notice that the work of Christ has brought the last days. God having of old time spoken unto the fathers and the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things. God has spoken, you see, at the end of the ages. Moreover, chapter 9, verse 26 looks at the priestly work of Christ in the same eschatological perspective. Hebrews 9.26 says, Else must he have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once, at the end of the ages, hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so the revelation of Jesus Christ and the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ denote that we've come to the final age. The end of time is upon us. Salvation is a present reality. Now you're used to thinking about that, so I just want to warn you what's coming in the next paragraph in my notes. Salvation is a future reality as well. But notice that salvation is presently here. Verse 3 of chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We can neglect the salvation that is a present reality. We'd be careful that we don't do that. And then one more indication... The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that we have been brought to the heavenly city of God already. Chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly of the church, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's fantastic. You have been brought into the very city and kingdom of God. And so, here the book of Hebrews tells us, the last days have arrived, salvation is present, and we have been brought into the heavenly city of God. And nevertheless, just as much, equally so, there is a future aspect to our eschatological experience as God's people. The consummation still lies ahead. And so the author says, Christ must appear a second time. He's already said Christ has appeared. But now he says he must appear a second time. Look at chapter 9, verse 28. We're going to do a lot of jumping around like this tonight because of the topical orientation, but... That's good for you to, you know, flex your muscles and turn those pages. 928. Is that what I told you? Yes. Yeah. And there the author says, 
So Christ also having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to them that wait for him unto salvation. We are still seeking a lasting city, one which is to come, and we're waiting for Christ to bring us salvation. 9.28 has said that. To them that wait for him unto salvation. We're waiting for the salvation of Christ. That will be our saving day when Jesus comes. And so on the one hand, we better not neglect so great a salvation. It's right here. It's ours to possess. And yet we're waiting for Jesus to come a second time that we might be saved. We've read that we have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But notice that Hebrews says that we are still looking for that lasting city, a city which is yet to come. Hebrews 13, 14 says that explicitly. For we have not here an abiding city, but we seek after the city which is to come. And if you look at chapter 11, that's an important point about our emulating the faithfulness of Abraham and others of the Old Covenant, that they did not receive the promise. They still looked for a city. They still looked for a heavenly home. And they operated in faith even though they had not received it as yet. And so we must as well. So there you have it. The book of Hebrews tells us it's already here. Salvation is ours. The kingdom has come. We're in the city of God. And then it says that Jesus has come again. Salvation is future. We are still looking for that city. Already? Not yet. And uh, some of you, not, not all of you, but some of you have heard me teach and preach about this in the past out of other passages. And it is a fascinating factor about New Testament theology that all the authors of the New Testament, the Gospel writers, Paul, the author of Hebrews, They've all got that structure in mind. Already, not yet. Something about the future has broken into the present, and yet we're still looking ahead. The kingdom's established, not yet consummated. And so, ask yourself, has Christ appeared according to the author of Hebrews? The answer, yes, no. He needs to appear again. Do we enjoy salvation? Yes. No, we're waiting for salvation to come. Have we come to the city of God? Yes. No, because we're still looking for that city which is to come. To answer these questions, you have to recognize the already and the not yet aspects of these things. And so, when we turn back to chapters 3 and 4, which we have been looking at the last couple times in our study, you'll notice that the church presently is understood by the author of Hebrews as experiencing triumph. And therefore it must hold fast to what it already has. Uh, just as an example, chapter 3, verse 6. For Christ is son over his house, whose house are we, if we hold fast our boldness and glory of our hope firm unto the end. Verse 14 of that chapter says, For we are become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast. Chapter 4, verse 14 having been a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is not by accident. The author is not at a, you know, at a loss for variation of vocabulary. It's purposeful. He says, look, salvation's come. Hold on to it. It's a present reality. Nevertheless, the author will just as much say the consummation has not yet come 
And for that reason, the church can be tempted. It has received something it must hold fast to, but it can be tempted to fall away or to come short of the blessing God intends. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brothers, lest aptly there shall be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear, therefore, lest aptly a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. It's amazing. The author keeps pressing the exhortation upon the church. Don't fall short. Don't fall away. Press on. Press on. So what is it? Do you hold fast or press on? What's the answer? It's both. You hold fast to that which is established. Press on to the consummation glory. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. In the midst of testing, there is the need to press on. Chapter 6, verse 1. Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto perfection, not laying again a foundation, etc., etc. And then over and over again in chapters 10 and 12, reference to persevering and enduring unto the end. Okay, let's put all this together. My first point this morning is just to lay out the general pattern. True to the rest of the New Testament and the Bible itself, the author of Hebrews sees history has broken into the present age and the coming age, but the coming age has broken into the present. The eschatological realities of salvation, the city of God, and so forth, are present to us, and we must hold fast to them. Yet they are yet future, and we must press on and persevere. The already, the not yet. Having laid the general framework, now let's focus in a little more closer and look specifically at chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 4, verse 13, because that is the long unit that might be called parenthetical. Again, that doesn't mean that it's an aside. But that is an explanation, and this may surprise you, that whole passage serves as an amplification of the exhortation in chapter 3, verse 6 at the end, if we hold fast. Imagine this. The author is speaking these words, he gets to chapter 3, verse 6. He says, But Christ has son over his house. Whose house are we if we hold fast our boldness and glorying of our hope from unto the end? And someone breaks in and says, What do you mean, if we hold fast? And then the author at verse 7 explains what it means if we hold fast and goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. That is the function of that lengthy passage. It all hangs together. And that's why I didn't like the fact chapter 4 is beginning where it does. That section all amplifies on the meaning of if we hold fast. Our present place in God's house is contingent upon our persevering into the future. Let's talk about that contingency, that persevering into the future. And to do that, the author now quotes, now you tell me because we really looked at this in depth last night. He quotes what passage of the Old Testament? Someone said it. Psalm 95, that's right. He gives a lengthy quotation of it, one of the longest Old Testament quotations found in the New Testament, and then he interprets it infallibly. And he's, in Psalm 95 itself was an interpretation of a previous experience in the history of Israel. 
someone tell me what previous experience it refers to? That's right. The children in the wilderness specifically, if you don't remember the name of the place, what's the incident? Rephidim is the name of the place. Thank you. What's the incident? Water from the rock. Remember they wanted to kill Moses. They said, you brought us out here to die. There's no water for us. And they tested God. And so God told Moses, name the place, chiding and rebuke, to remember the horrible attitude of the Israelites who murmured and were murderous toward Moses and actually put God to the test. And then, of course, God stands upon the rock and tells Moses, strike the rock, meaning strike me, and then living water comes out. Beautiful picture. Psalm 95 reflects on that. And what he reflects on, though, is the murmuring and the unbelief of the children, the chiding and the rebuke of the children of God, and how God swears in his wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Because 40 years they tempted me in this wilderness. So what? Just Sunday school history, right? No. Author of Hebrews says this was written for our exhortation. This was written to tell us we'd better press into the rest of God. We too are in a wilderness situation. We have not come to the promised land. And so all that exhortation given in Psalm 95 based upon Exodus 17 was given for our benefit today. The author's annotations upon and his application of Psalm 95, which dealt with Israel between Egypt and Canaan, make clear that the author of Hebrews sees the situation of the Christian church in this day as analogous to the Old Testament wilderness community. If you're taking notes, you must get that in there because I'm going to play off of that premise the rest of the evening. The author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews sees the New Testament church as in an analogous situation to Israel in the wilderness. We are the wilderness community. We are not in the promised land. Of course, he says in chapter 11, verse 13, that we're pilgrims on this earth. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's our model. We confess that in this world we are strangers and pilgrims. This is not the new heavens and the new earth. This is not the consummation of the kingdom of God. We are looking for an eternal day in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are pilgrims. We're a wilderness community. We're pressing to the promised land. In 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter actually says that. We are sojourners in this world. In Peter 2, verse 11, he says the same thing. Okay. The premise then is that we, like Israel in the wilderness, are sojourners having not yet pressed into the promised land. The author of um, Hebrews indicates that we have the same promise as was given to Israel of old to enter into God's rest. He says we have the same danger faced by Israel of old, that of apostasy and falling away from the living God. He says we have the same exhortation to persevere to the end and press into God's rest as Israel of old. And so if we take the opening framework that I gave you, and now this crucial premise, what we're saying is redemption has taken place, and yet we have not entered finally into the rest that redemption promises. Israel had already been saved. Do you understand that? 
Israel had already been redeemed. That's why it's called the Exodus. God had brought them out of bondage. He had bought them out of slavery. They were redeemed and set free already. They had left under Moses, as 3.16 tells us in Hebrews. Um, where am I? For who, when they heard, did provoke? Nay, did not all they that came out of Egypt by Moses, already saved, already liberated, already redeemed, and yet they did not yet fully enjoy the salvation that God intended for them. As 4.8 says, they had not possessed the promised land under Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken afterwards of another day. So the whole point is, we are like Israel of old between Egypt and Canaan. We're in the wilderness. Already redeemed, not yet fully in enjoyment of that salvation. Is that the point? I mean, I've said it over and over again. If you get the structure, now I'm going to start giving some labels to it. The already aspect of salvation is denoted in our passage by the word today. Did it bother you, even when I was reading the sections, and how often the author keeps saying that, that word today? Today is this, today. And it says in another place, today. And he defines a certain day, namely today. That today is just reamed at us over and over and over again. Today denotes the time in which the good news is preached. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have had good tidings preached unto us, even as also they, but the word did not profit them. Today is when good news is preached. Today is when we are summoned to faith over against the threat of apostasy. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take heed, brethren, lest haply there be anyone in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. But exhort one another day by day, so long as it is called today. And so the author thinks about two things today. That term today picks up all of what the church is in the midst of affliction, testing, and wilderness wandering. Today hear his voice. Today believe the gospel. Today don't harden your hearts. Today press on. It's clear that the author sees God's people as still walking by faith, not by sight. That's all of chapter 11 Hebrews is about. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith today. Final judgment is still future. Chapter 9, verse 28 tells us that. In chapter 12, verses 25 and 20, well, 25 to 29 in that chapter. So today is the day of opportunity. Today is the day of response. Today is the day of testing and persevering to the end. It's the day of wilderness wandering for us. Uh, notice especially chapter 3, verses 15 and 17. In 15, he quotes it, While it is said, Today, if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. In verse 17, And with whom was he displeased forty years? Was it not with them that sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? It was a day of tempting, and their bodies fell in the wilderness. Specifically, the certain day when God's people are called upon to hear God's voice and not to harden their hearts is called today. Chapter 4, verse 7. He again defineth a certain day, quote, today. He defines that day, 
And what's he say? Saying in David so long a time afterwards, even as he has said before, today if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Okay. It may seem to you that I'm repeating myself. I'm going over and over. Well, you see, there are theologians in this world who have missed the obvious linguistic points that I'm making. The author has this already not yet structure. We've seen that very clearly. And now what I'm saying is the already aspect of our experience is denoted by the word today in chapters 3 and 4. Today you are tempted. Today you are hearing his voice. Today you should have faith. Today don't harden your heart. Today persevere. Well then what is the not yet called in chapters 3 and 4? Well you're going gonna to make me feel real good as your pastor if someone will give me the right answer here. Do you... What is the phrase used in chapters 3 and 4 for that not yet aspect of salvation? What is it we are still pressing to enter? Tap, make my day. My rest, exactly. And so you put today on this side of the blackboard and my rest on the other side. The already is denoted by the today exhortation. The my rest reflects what we have yet to experience, what we are pressing to enter into. It's the not yet aspect of salvation. Standing in contrast to the believer's present situation of toil and testing. The day is coming when we will rest from all of our labors. But today we persevere. Today we exert ourselves. Today we, we rise to the occasion of resisting sin and obeying God. And so notice how my rest, meaning God's rest, my rest is something into which we must yet enter. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us fear, therefore, lest aptly a promise being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. You can't miss it. We have not yet entered God's rest. The author is afraid that some of us who profess faith may fall short of it. And then... Uh, for um, 4.11 as well. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest that no man fall after the same example of disobedience as the, as the Israelites of old. And so the author says, my rest, that is God's rest, is future. Press into it. That is yet to be experienced. Like Canaan was to the Jews, God's rest is to us as something that lies ahead for us. Chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken afterward of another day. They did not yet enjoy the rest of Canaan, and we, too, do not yet enjoy the rest of God's promised land. We are still pressing in to God's rest. I think I have, there's so many theological connections here that I enjoy. Let me just point out one. Notice that what we are going to receive as the rest of God is called an inheritance. Chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation? In the future, when we receive that eschatological final salvation, it's called an inheritance. We will inherit salvation. In chapter 9, verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, 
that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now why am I pointing that out? Well, because the word inheritance is the technical term that the Jews used for their uh, plot of ground that the family would receive in the promised land. That's no accident. The author of Hebrews knows Old Testament theology. And he says, we will inherit salvation. The promise of that inheritance is going to be given to us. And it will be our coming city, our heavenly homeland. Chapter 11 tells us that that's what we're looking ahead to. Uh, look at 11 verse 10. For he looked for the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then uh, verse 16. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one, wherefore God's not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Chapter 13, verse 14. For we have not here an abiding city, but we seek after the city which is to come. And so again, it is abundantly clear that the author says God's rest lays ahead for us. The rest of the promised land. It is our inheritance it is our heavenly city. Just like Israel was pressing to Canaan, we are pressing into God's rest, the heavenly inheritance that lies ahead. Not yet realized. So what are we in? We're in the wilderness. Today, listen to God's voice. Today, don't harden your heart. Today, persevere. What lies ahead for us? The promise of the inheritance of a heavenly city, the very thing that God calls His rest the rest that he promises. Now, move on to the third point tonight. $64,000 question. Why does God call this rest? Where does this come from? Pat, you're really hot tonight. I mean, that's the Sabbath rest. Verse 9, chapter 4. Well, it's Sabbath rest, but i got to go back earlier in that, Pat. Only get half credit this time. What creation? Exactly, Judith. That's right. Genesis 2-2. The author now relates the promised land and the heavenly rest that we are looking forward to back to Genesis 2, verse 2. By the way, he does this, I should have pointed this out to begin with, in chapter 4, verse 4. For he hath said somewhere, don't you love the way they quote the Old Testament? Would you let your kids get away with that? That says somewhere in the Old Testament. <laughs> For he hath said somewhere, they didn't have chapters and verses to refer to in this day. He hath said somewhere, of the seventh day, on this wise, quote, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Almost verbatim, a quotation at the end of Genesis 2, verse 2. The future rest, you can call this back to the future, if you will. The, the future rest which both Israel and the church look forward to, has been available as far back as creation. As far back as the days of creation, as we see from the incorporation of Genesis 2-2 into the discussion at chapter 4-4. 2-2 at 4-4 should be easy to remember. Because the author now is defining further the rest of which the promised land was a, uh, a type or a token, or a foreshadow. 
In chapter 4, verse 3, he refers to that rest. For we who have believed do enter into that rest, even as he hath said, I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now that rest of which he was speaking, that we enter into, and they didn't because of unbelief, he says that rest is what Genesis 2-2 is talking about, that God rested from all his works. And so what we are looking forward to as the consummation of redemption is nothing less than God's rest at the time of creation. It is back to the future, very literally. We are going ahead. We are going to have our redemption consummated. And when we do, we will finally get to what God promised at creation, his rest. If Adam and Eve had persevered under tempting, if they had been confirmed in righteousness, they would have entered into the eternal and perfect rest that God himself enjoys at the end of creation. But because they sinned, we're now going through this long cycle of redemption, and when redemption is finished, we'll finally get what God intended at the beginning. Paradise regained. The rest of God is going to be given to us and so redemption has as its purpose the fulfillment of God's purpose in creating the world. Why did God create the world? To give man rest in him. Why is God redeeming man? To give him rest in him. Now, there are some in this room I know because I've tutored and talked to you about this that will find significance beyond what we're into tonight. And that has incredible significance in dealing with other theological systems. Creation and redemption are not categorically different then. That what God did at creation is now being restored by redemption, which really blows the smithereens any dispensational structuring of biblical history because it all ties together. What God is doing in redemption is not somehow a special work that can apply to all men as men. So we have this idea that redemption and the principles of redemption, the lifestyle that goes along with redemption, well, that's kind of like a, for a special people, and it wouldn't be appropriate to have men qua men follow that. But this tells us that man as created was made to be what man is becoming in redemption. They tie together creation and redemption. Well, I'll get off that because we have to get onto the Sabbath before I run out of time. Man's final rest, however, has been available from the foundation of the world. Notice that God didn't come up with that as plan B. He didn't say, well, that failed. What do I do now? Well, how about we'll give him Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest was from the beginning. Sabbath rest is all that God intended as the blessing of man's creation. If man had been confirmed in righteousness, it would have been a Sabbath day forever. I get so worked up about this. The next time somebody suggests to you that the Sabbath day is not important, remember that. If man had been what he was supposed to be, if man had been confirmed in righteousness and granted the blessing that God promised at the time of his probation, it would have been a Sabbath day. That's how important the Sabbath day is. It's what God intended from creation for man and what God is now trying to restore to us in redemption. Man's final rest has been available from the foundation of the world, but Israel was barred from entering into it. 
because Israel couldn't press into the promised land, the promised land was a shadow, a foreshadow, a token, a type, a sign of the rest that God is going to bring in the future. They didn't come into it, but we who are believers today do certainly enter into it. Chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. For we who have believed do enter into that rest, even as he hath said. In verse 4, For he had said somewhere of the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So, we are enjoying what creation intended and what Israel forfeited. And we are going to enjoy the rest of God. Fourth point in tonight's lesson. You better know that as a debater, I've been setting you up for something. If you follow these premises, you're going to be locked into a conclusion that's going to be devastating about the Sabbath. Because now, in verse 9, chapter 4, here's the punchline. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I'm translating one word in the Greek as Sabbath resting, actually. Sabbath observing. It is the word sabbatismos in Greek. It's an unusual word not found anywhere else. It seems to be coined, however, from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, where cognate terms are used for observing the Sabbath day as distinct from the day itself. That is, the resting, the observing, is a sabbatismos over against the day, which is the framework in which we rest. And what the author says is, there remains therefore a Sabbath resting for the people of God. And so, God's rest, my rest as God puts it in the Bible, God's rest is a kind of Sabbath resting. We learn in chapter uh, 4, verse 9. The ongoing Sabbath observance is tied to the eschatological Sabbath rest that was established at creation and is anticipated in redemption. As broad as you can get in God's divine scheme, from creation to redemption, the Sabbath rest is the model of that. And so the continuing observation of the Sabbath is nothing less than a foreshadow or a sign of the coming consummation rest which God will grant his people in the future. Let me add something to this. The author has quoted Genesis 2, verse 2, to make his point. And in Genesis 2, 2, he's talking about the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath day, not just the Sabbath cycle in general. In Exodus 20, verse 11, and Exodus 31, 17, which we'll skip looking up right now. Well, you remember it from the law. Why does God institute the Sabbath day? Because he says, since I worked six days and then entered into my rest, you shall work six and enter into your rest. And so the re- it's quoting Genesis 2, verse 2 in Exodus. And so we know that that's a reference to the weekly Sabbath, not just the Sabbath cycle, not just the Sabbath festivals or years. You ready for the conclusion? Here's what it comes down to. The church today is in a wilderness situation of testing, 
and toil and work. The weekly Sabbath is tied to the Sabbath resting which the church will enjoy in the future when it enters into God's rest. A rest that was established at creation and now is the goal of redemption. So should we keep the Sabbath today? Well, I tell you, you can't, this is the most devastating argument available in all the Bible. Of course we should keep the Sabbath today. Are we not created men? Didn't he establish that at creation is the very purpose of our existence? To enjoy the Sabbath rest? And isn't that the goal of redemption into which we are yet pressing? Of course we observe the Sabbath today. For there continues to be a Sabbath rest for the people of God that lies ahead. Now, I'm going to draw that conclusion out at the end of our study in about five or six minutes. But before I do it, I, I need to close one door that might seem to be an exit for those who don't want to keep the Sabbath. So I'm going to really lock you into my conclusions here. I want to stress that my rest is entirely future. My rest in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews is future and only future. Because the eschatological benefits of salvation are already available to us in Jesus Christ, we presently enjoy something of the age to come. I told you that. And in some sense, we could say rest has been given to us, couldn't we? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 11, Come to me, all of you who are, um, what? To call the salvation that we presently enjoy rest. It is called that in Matthew 11 chapter. But the decisive interpretive question is how the author of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4 uses the expression God's rest, or my rest. Specifically, in Hebrews 3 and 4, the church is likened to Israel in the wilderness, Psalm 95. And therefore, the church, short of its promised destination. My rest represents the destination that we've not yet entered into. Now, Baptists and dispensationalists have attempted two arguments to escape that. By the way, only the more sophisticated of their writers get into this. Most of them are not even aware of the exegesis that I'm talking about tonight. But to the degree that any have been educated at Westminster Seminary and didn't want to accept the, that conclusion, this is what they'll say. First of all, in chapter 4, verse 3, notice it says, For we who have believed do enter into that rest. Present tense. And so the rest is not entirely future, the rest is present. What do you say about that? Well, those of you who have had any advanced grief will appreciate this, I think, more than those who haven't. I don't know what to say to you who haven't to give you a sense for this. You almost, you've just got to get down into the, the nuts and bolts of this to appreciate it. The present tense means a multitude of things in grief. To say, every time you see something in the in the literal grammatical present, that means actually present tense, is entirely wrong when it comes to Greek. The, the present is used to cover a lot of different things. Um, it has such a wide variety of functions in so many different senses 
that only the local context can tell you how the present tense is being used in Koine Greek. And now, if that's true, and any scholars of Greek will verify that much, even if they don't like my ultimate conclusion, if that's true, what is the local context? Everything in this context points to the fact that my rest is future. Everything makes the church a wilderness model assembly. That's just too obvious in the passage. And so if my rest is future, to interpret the present tense as literally a present would be highly inappropriate. Well, what else could it be then? Well, a couple of very good possibilities. First, the present tense may be taken in the progressive sense, often in Greek, to say that we enter into his rest means we are entering into his rest. It's, some, it's an ongoing process progressively being accomplished. It could mean that. We are, in the pro we are in the process of entering into his rest. We have not yet arrived. But I think it likely is more the present tense intended as a future to be communicated with certainty. And throughout the Bible, this is what prophecy does. Prophecy is often given in the present tense. That would be bewildering to a you know, first semester Greek student, I think. Here's something that you know is future. For unto us a child is born. Wrong. Will be born, Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah says it is so certain that I tell it to you in the present. It's something that's future, but there's no doubt about it. It's as though it's happening right now. That's how certain and clear it is. The present is sometimes used to communicate certainty about a future event. And you see a good example of that in Acts 14.22, by the way, where the present infinitive is used for something that no commentator takes as present tense. Acts 14.22, present tense used for a future event. There we read, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and, and here's the crucial phrase, through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Don't you love it? Same verb, enter into. Present tense. But it's through many tribulations that we enter into it. So it's something future communicated in terms of a present tense in, in Greek grammar. So what I'm saying is that in Hebrews 4 verse 3, that present tense is to be taken axiomatically. Certainly, we enter into his rest, those of us who believe. Okay, there's a second argument people use. Chapter 4, verse 10 says, For he that has entered into his rest hath himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. And the question is raised, doesn't this verse point to our resting from our works, and thus point to the present experience of justification by faith? We now rest from our works that we might be saved by faith. That is, that is so horrendously bad, biblical interpretation, that I would expect, I know we're getting close to when I have to stop, so I'm not going to wait for you. My guess is if I gave you five minutes, almost everyone could figure out what's wrong with it. Here's what's wrong with it. In chapter 10, my resting from my works is parallel to what? God resting from his works. In the sense that I am justified by faith, not by works, what kind of works am I resting from? dead works, evil works, legalistic, self-meritorious works. 
The Bible speaks of repentance from dead works and faith in the living God. Absolutely true. But if you interpret this as saying that, then my resting from my evil works of unbelief is parallel to God resting from his works at creation. And that is horrendous theologically. Works must be taken not in the evil sense here, but in the good sense. And the author does that. Um, if you'll look ahead to chapter 6, verse 10, for instance. The author says there, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and the love which you show toward his name. And then chapter uh, 10, verse 24 especially. 10:24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And so it's possible linguistically, and more than likely, that the author, in speaking of our resting from our works, it's not talking about resting from self-merit, resting from the attempt to save ourselves through self-righteous deeds of the law. He's talking rather about good works that we do that are pleasing to God. These are works performed in the wilderness situation of persevering to the end. And what 4.10 is expressing is the general truth that entering into rest means resting from the good toil and labors that are performed in the time of our wilderness testing. A day is coming when exertion will be put behind and we enter into the consummation rest of the Lord. So even as God exerted himself six days and came to rest and satisfaction, so we exert ourselves in the wilderness and the day is coming when we will rest in God. And so the rest here is not present at all, is it? It's what God will reward us with after the wilderness experience. Indeed, the author is trying to tell us that the finished work of Christ has secured and guaranteed the rest which is in view in Genesis 2, verse 2. In Genesis 2, there is no consideration of man's sin. The rest into which we enter is rest that does not have in its purview tension with man's sin. But that rest promised in Genesis 2.2 will not arrive in full reality until the tension with sin has been done away with. And that will happen when Christ returns. And so we will one day enter into the rest of the Lord. A rest that is beyond tempting, beyond the wilderness, beyond the exhortation to persevere. The rest that is the satisfaction and consummation of salvation. And this means, therefore, that the rest of which Hebrews 3 and 4 speaks, is the goal is the goal that stands in contrast to the wilderness through which we're presently moving. The wilderness is a time of perseverance, or if you will, is a time of testing faith, <coughs> which stands over against the blessed hope of God's rest, where faith is rewarded. In a word, God's rest is exclusively future in the imagery of Hebrews 3 and 4. Okay, so I've closed the exit. No one can say, oh, wait a minute, rest is present as well as future. No, in these chapters, rest is future and only future. What is present is wilderness tempting and testing and perseverance in faith. What conclusions have I locked you into? It's very simply that Sabbath resting has a continuing moral force today. 
Notice that Hebrews 4.10 begins with the word for. It's explaining something. And what Hebrews 4.10 explains is verse 9, that there remains a Sabbath resting, a Sabbath observing for the people of God. Verse 10 tells us why there still remains a Sabbath resting for the people of God. And the reason is that the church has not yet entered into that future condition of resting from its works, the works of perseverance in the wilderness. The future rest that we look forward to of resting from our works is the same as the Sabbath resting of verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God means we haven't come to heaven yet. And when we get to heaven, then we'll cease from our labors and enjoy the presence of God. Here's my conclusion. Hebrews 3 and 4 says that the rest that God's people need and look forward to is first grounded in God's rest of creation is secondly called a Sabbath resting, and thirdly is entirely future. The rest for God's people is one, grounded in God's rest at creation, two, is called a Sabbath resting, and three, is entirely future. And you can hardly miss the inference then that the weekly Sabbath is a sign, is a pointer of the eternal rest that yet awaits God's people. Since the reality of which the weekly Sabbath is the sign is entirely future, the sign itself continues in force for our present day. If we've not yet entered into the rest, then the sign of that rest stays with us until we reach it. I mean, why would the sign pass away when that which it points to has not yet been achieved or come about? Indeed, this weekly Sabbath is not only a sign of the future, it is also a reminder of the past work of God in creation. It is what we call a creation ordinance. And so we must conclude, from creation to consummation, the weekly Sabbath is divinely intended as a continuing observance for God's people. You know, I just shake my head in dismay when I think of the hundreds of people I've talked to in my life who have suggested that the Sabbath was only a temporary institution for the Mosaic period. If you understand the theology of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, you know how to take that idea apart. From creation to consummation, the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, is intended as a continuing observance for God's people. And so two corollaries. The spiritual rest that has been brought to us by Christ does not abrogate the weekly Sabbath. If someone says, we don't need the Sabbath because Jesus has come and he's given us rest. And you say, you better read Hebrews 3 and 4. Because there yet remains a Sabbath resting for the people of God, of which the weekly Sabbath is the pointer. And then a second corollary. It's highly appropriate to speak of the Christian Sabbath. And I realize in looking around the room that probably very few of you are aware of the literature over the last 15 years on this issue. In the Reformed world, there has been a real shaking and controversy over this question, is there a Christian Sabbath? 
and our Reformed Baptist brothers, I love them for many things, but this I can't go along with, our Reformed Baptist brothers have been wanting to say, there's no Christian Sabbath, there's just the Lord's Day, and it's different from the Sabbath. You just can't say that here. There remains yet a Sabbath resting for the people of God. And that Sabbath resting was established at Genesis 2-2, and it's going to be with us until Christ comes again. So the weekly Sabbath is the Christian Sabbath. For the writer of Hebrews, the weekly Sabbath is an eschatological sign grounded in creation and continues under the new covenant until the day Christ returns. That's what I've tried to lock you into tonight. If you follow my detailed exegesis, you'll see that Hebrews 3 and 4 requires that we continue to observe the Sabbath today. To say that we don't need the Sabbath is to say either it's not a creation ordinance, it's not God's rest intended from the beginning, or that it's not a sign, or we don't need a sign of the coming reality because we already have it all. We've entered into God's rest, but we haven't. We're still in the wilderness. We're not in the promised land, and until we do enter the promised land, we observe the Sabbath as a token, a sign, dare I say this, a down payment on what the eternal state is going to be all about. When people resist my exhortations to be Sabbath keepers, I sometimes ask them whether they really think they'll be comfortable in heaven. Because if you don't think observing the Sabbath is all that important or that much of a blessing, you may not like heaven because it's going to be an eternal Sabbath rest of God. Now, we don't have time tonight to get into all the ins and outs of what does it mean to observe the Sabbath? How can you make it a blessed day? How can you make it heaven on earth for one day during the week? But my guess is if the Sabbath bores you, it's because you've not pursued it to its health. You've not used it the way God has given it to you to use. And I haven't done that to its max either. I know that. But to the limited degree that I have begun to use the Sabbath as a day of joy and blessing, I look forward to it. And I say that as the one person who has to work. You guys don't have to. I have to preach on Sunday. I get worn out. But when I get that over with and I go home and I think about all that the Sabbath represents and all the opportunity it gives me, what a blessing it is. And that's what heaven's going to be going to be a Sabbath resting in God. You came here for a Bible study, and I think you got a sermon. Um, what do you want to say? Any questions you want to ask? Okay, Scott. Um, what was the first Sabbath rest of the observed before the Mosaic? Yes, they did. It's an interesting thing that in Exodus... I may be wrong on the chapters, but 16 and 17, I believe, you will read that the Israelites were already observing a Sabbath rest before they got to Mount Sinai, and that in the giving of the manna, they were to collect two days' worth on the sixth day. And that's, that's before Moses went up Sinai and got the Ten Commandments and spoke of in explicit form the Sabbath day. I believe that in their heart of hearts, in the same way that homosexuals in their heart of hearts know that what they're doing is perverse, as Romans 1 says. In their heart of hearts, the Israelites had uh, an understanding of uh, resting one day a week in God. That is a moral requirement from creation, the details of which are fleshed out in the law of God. The, I mean, the verbal law of God. The law was already in their hearts. Don? Yes, 
Judge you all to the day. drink 
and Sabbath day, people will say, now Christ is the substance of which those things were the shadow. And they have passed away in Christ. And I say, okay, what does this meat and drink refer to? And they'll say it refers to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. What Sabbath referred to? We the Sabbath. Only one problem, though, and that's that there are no drink requirements in the Old Testament. There can't be a reference to that. But if you read your Old Testament, you will find reference to drink offerings, meat offerings, and Sabbath day offerings. That language, those things run together in the Old Testament law. I would suggest that Paul is referring then to those offerings as being a reference to Christ and that he's brought in the reality and therefore he's not talking about the Sabbath day at all. So now I've given you a thumbnail sketch of how you can deal in exegetical um, detail with those negative passages. They are not decisive. The Word of God's got to be taken as a whole. And when it is, I believe that the continuation of the Sabbath is an obligation that <coughs> really striking. Kevin? Part of what the author of Hebrew is saying here really matches to uh, acknowledging that you should honor the Sabbath, but establishing that there's difference between the Sabbath rest for the Christian in this age and what the Hebrew, the old church, the Hebrew faith Well, with regard to a number of things that the Jewish religion represented, not just the Sabbath, sacrificial system. Yeah, that's right. that Hebrews 3 and 4 does not focus on the method or mode of observing the Sabbath. And so the question you're raising is not really in the purview of these two chapters, but what you are saying is true to the author's teaching elsewhere, I think, yes. Uh, all, all we've established tonight is that there is a Sabbath observance for God's people. And then we're going to have to get into, well, what does that mean? Is it on the seventh day, first day? How do you do it? No, I don't think that's said anywhere in the Bible. Jesus... <laughs> well, now, the only reason I, I bring that out uh, explicitly uh, is that one of the premises I was raising is that rest in the book of Hebrews is future. Jesus guarantees our Sabbath rest. Jesus has entered into that Sabbath rest, and we are in union with him. So, I mean, you can say a lot of interesting theological things about that rest, but that rest is yet future. He is not now my rest. Um, he is the guarantor that I will enter into that rest. And he offers rest. Matthew 11, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Okay, we're, we're going to take, oh, I'm sorry to keep you so long tonight. Uh, one more question. Go ahead. No, no. In nine, there remains a Sabbath resting means heaven. 
there remains the Sabbath resting of heaven. No, I think, it, I, think it's, I think it's stronger than there's a verse that says that the whole thrust of this passage is that the weekly Sabbath was established at creation and looks ahead to that resting that yet lies ahead. Because there yet remains a Sabbath resting, there yet remains a Sabbath resting. I mean, in a sense, you take it in both ways. Because the Sabbath resting is still future, that of which it is the type or the symbol still is with us. That that part is inferential, but it's kind of like the inference of an avalanche. <laughs> to miss it is to miss the whole point of the passage. And I, I really want to go on. The, whole, the question of the Sabbath, as you know from open forum, exercises us a great deal. Um, but we're going to have to stop for the sake of you have other things. And sadly, I'm one of those people who has another thing that to do the way. But I promise that I'll be glad to talk to you another time about it if you want to bring it up again. Jim, would you uh, close in prayer? Father in heaven, how thankful we are, Lord, to be reminded that there is a rest for us, for we indeed, Lord, experience this wilderness in the time of testing and of trial, in the time of uh, living in a world in which there is sin that is not only without, but also within. Oh Lord, how we thank you that Jesus Christ is our hope in this world and that we might look forward to resting with him no longer to be in a time of trial, no longer to have tears. Lord, help us to press on 